We've now seen private sector job growth for 10 straight months. That means that since January, the private sector has added 1.1 million jobs. The king of the jungle was asleep in his car when your chances fall in your lap like that. You gotta recognize them for what they really are. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Friday, November 5th, and that was, of course, President Obama, you heard at the top of the show, speaking this morning to the press. Today on the podcast, we bring you something we have been searching for desperately, tirelessly for two years, an apology. We bring you a person who works in finance who actually would like to apologize to each and every one of you for the housing crisis in general and his role in it. And there's one more thing you'd like to say to all of us. Thank you. Thank you for the bailout. That is coming up. But first, our indicator from Jacob Julius Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator, 4.7%. That's the unemployment rate for people with a college degree, according to the jobs numbers the government put out today. Now, the number we've been hearing everywhere today is 9.6%. That's the overall unemployment rate, the headline number. But, you know, it's interesting. When you dig into these jobs numbers, you see these very different stories. Like, one really striking one is if you compare high school dropouts to college grads. So, just a reminder, college grads, the unemployment rate, just under 5%. High school dropouts, the unemployment rate is over 15%. Wow. It's like high school dropouts and college graduates are living in two totally different countries. College graduates are barely in an economic slowdown at all. More than 95% have jobs. And high school dropouts, I mean, that's verging on Great Depression unemployment rates. Yeah, it's really striking, although it's worth noting that even in good times for this country, the unemployment rate is way higher for high school dropouts than for college grads. And in fact, if you look over the past few years, the unemployment rate has basically doubled for both of these groups. You can see this trend in a bunch of other interesting job trends on our blog. Our production assistant, Jess Jang, put up some great graphs. Uh, The blog is uh, npr.org slash money, of course. Nice. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Great plug for the blog. Thanks, guys. So, Hannah, today's podcast is all the result of this pretty remarkable email that I got a few weeks ago. It was in response to a piece I did on This American Life with Ira a few weeks back. Basically, there's this question we have here at Planet Money. Why aren't people on Wall Street at least a little bit grateful? You know, it's it's pretty clear that in the fall of 2008 – most major firms on Wall Street would have collapsed if us taxpayers didn't bail them out. I think it's a fairly uncontroversial thing to say. Yet when we interview people who work on Wall Street, people who work in these financial firms, their attitude is, is, I mean, I'd say almost never one of gratitude to us taxpayers, to the government. And as an illustration of this on the show, This American Life, you and a producer from the show went to this bar in the heart of the financial district, a place called Pound and Pence, to talk to people there. And I do want to say quickly that at this point in the tape, we had been arguing for quite some time trying to see if they had any gratitude at all to the U.S. government and U.S. taxpayers. Okay, so let's hear an excerpt. So you're an institutional investor. You work for a credit rating agency. What do you do? I work in a, in, a, in, a, in a bank on Wall Street. All right. I can guarantee your bank would have gone under. Your stock valuation would have collapsed. 
your credit rating agencies out of business. would have been out of business. You, all three of you, directly benefited from the bailout. What? Dude, you're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy, man. So what do you do? Don't bail it out? That's the question. Do you not bail it out? I don't know. Okay, so you let it tank. It's up to you. I would like to bail it out, and I would like to walk into a bar in Lower Manhattan and have one of you thank me. Thank you. I still have my job, and I appreciate it. Why do you want that? What, what? No, you guys still have your job. Because I'm a smart person. And you think you really got to keep your job because you're smart? You got to keep your job because you guys got bailed out. You guys got bailed No, 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 no. That's not why I have my job. I mean, survival of the fittest. I'd say these guys are fairly typical of my experience of talking to people who work in finance, who work on Wall Street. Instead of an apology, instead of a thank you, we get the opposite. They say, oh, the government's beating up on us. The taxpayers are yelling at us. It's all this populist rage. And when I aired the story, I, you know, I, I felt like everyone who works in finance felt this way. But then I got this email, and actually kind of a testy email from one listener. Well, I guess I was a little annoyed that you didn't uh, mention some people were, you know, grateful and apologetic. Some people specifically like him, Jacob Kossoff. Jacob is indeed a finance guy, although he didn't work on Wall Street. He worked in D.C. as an economist for Freddie Mac. And he told me that my story was wrong, that there are finance people, or at least he had the evidence of one finance person, who would like to say thank you and I'm sorry. And so I promised to give him the opportunity right here and now to thank each and every one of you listening, at least each and every one of you who is a U.S. taxpayer. He wants you to know he really is grateful. I am. Thank you for the yeah for a variety of things. Thanks for uh, the government money for for Freddie Mac, which I think kept me employed for you know a while after that until I voluntarily left. So thank you for the funding for Freddie and Fannie. Uh, thank you for the general bailout, um, which I think helped all f- financial firms, or if not all, then most financial firms. And as somebody who works in that industry and applies for jobs at different ones, you know a lot of the places I applied to may not have existed if it wasn't for the government stepping in. So that right there is Jacob's thank you. And Adam, you and I talked to Jacob for a while. And in addition to expressing his gratitude, he also asked for the opportunity to say he is sorry. And it's a very specific apology. And he realized talking to him, it's a really big deal for him to be able to do this, for him to be able to say I'm sorry. And that in order to get to this point, he had to go through an entire personal transformation that challenged his most fundamental beliefs. Yes. So let's tell the story of his conversion. It all starts in 2007. Jacob was working as a home ownership evangelical missionary. I don't mean that in the religious sense. Although, actually, I guess I do kind of mean it in the religious sense. When you hear him talk about what home ownership meant to him, it was like he was in the religion of home ownership. Although professionally, what he was doing was he was an economist at Freddie Mac. Now, Freddie Mac is one of these weird institutions. It's hard to get your head around it. It was started by the U.S. government to promote home ownership, but at least until it was taken over by the U.S. government two years ago when it was on the verge of collapse, it was in the private sector. It was a for-profit company that was supposed to serve a public service mission. And Jacob actually worked in something called the mission department. So our job is to make sure we achieve the goals of, of Freddie Mac, which is um, 
there's affordability, stability, and liquidity. And specifically in affordability, the government had set affordable housing goals for us, um, like a certain percentages of the mortgages that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae bought um, had to fit certain low-income requirements. So here's how Jacob made sure Freddie Mac achieved the goal of broad homeownership. Every month, traders at Freddie Mac would buy up mortgages from financial companies all over the U.S. And this was great for financial companies because they don't want to hold on to all those mortgages. And it was great for Freddie Mac because all that buying meant that they could exert pressure on the country's lenders. So Jacob would look over the details and make sure that enough of these mortgages went to underserved people, poor people, people in bad neighborhoods. And if not, Jacob was able to get Freddie Mac to call those big banks and the mortgage lenders and say, hey, guys, you have to start lending money to more poor people if you want our business. Jacob and his colleagues called themselves housers, meaning they believed buying a house is almost always the right solution for everybody. I would think I was putting people in housing that wouldn't be in housing and that I thought that uh, subprime mortgages were great and that they were helping people that were low income that normally couldn't afford to buy a house, buy a house. And I was very supportive and I thought subprime was the best thing in the world. So you guys were the missionizers. Yes, we were very uh, into it, into, uh, you know, very much we were the we were the true believers. So what's amazing about that is that Jacob was promoting subprime mortgages after lots of other people in finance were saying, hey, there's a subprime housing bubble and it's popping. When did you start working there? What year? Uh, January 2007. Wow. So that's a crazy time to start working there. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's, you know, we, we feel we've established that at least some folks on Wall Street were pretty clear that the, the bubble was close to popping. But was that not what you knew? Yeah, I missed I, I missed that memo. Yeah, I I did not think house prices were popping. I was ready to go. I was like, we need to buy more. Even in the summer of 07, I was very supportive. It wasn't until the fall of 2007 that Jacob Kossoff started to have some uncomfortable thoughts. He remembers one weekend he went to a conference and there were a lot of housers there, lots of people he knew. And that is when it first happened. I don't know if there's a specific speaker or a specific paper I read, but that's the first time I saw it even thinking that you could compare house prices to rents. Like, I remember that clicked in my head. I was like, oh, someone could pay 2000 a month in a mortgage. Maybe the rent would be 1000 Maybe that'd be a better deal if they're the same place. And that was the first time I thought maybe there could be some times ever in your life, possibly, that renting could maybe be better. So remarkably, this thought had never occurred to him before. But once it entered his brain, it wouldn't leave him alone. The uncomfortable thoughts kept coming. I remember then I started trying to do some of the math myself. I was like, oh, well, maybe um, the the benefit of house price appreciation on average really isn't so good because except for the boom years, that cancels out with all the maintenance costs you put in. And then I stepped back and thought, you know what? A mortgage is really just 80% interest. And interest, like rent, is the right to live somewhere you don't own. And I was like, wow, the rents are lower than the mortgage for all these places. It was a bit like announcing like, oh, there is no God, like the idea that housing was like God. It was like, of course it goes up. Of course, it's a great deal. Well, everyone else said, no, 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 we need to favor home ownership. favor home ownership. Buying is always better. So I felt very much like an outsider, like an outsider to my friends, but also outsider to myself. Like, is this really right? Is, uh, could renting maybe sometimes be better, really? Of course, Jacob learned, as I think we all did when the housing market finally collapsed, that renting 
is indeed sometimes better. And sometimes a subprime loan is not the best choice for everybody. So Jacob is sorry in general that he didn't realize earlier that home ownership sometimes, now not all the time, but sometimes is not such a great idea. And when he thinks back on it now, there were consequences to him coming to that realization so late. There was something very specific he could have done. He wishes he had done differently. So on the Freddie Mac website, freddiemac.com. Okay. If you go down to the bottom of the page, there should be something called calculators, maybe on the bottom right. Calculator. Yeah. Okay, click on that. Okay. And the first option, the first calculator should say rent or buy or rent versus buy. Okay, perfect. Click on that. Okay. We're sitting at computers, and the online calculator Jacob takes us to is not something he made, but it's something he managed while he was at Freddie Mac. And at the top, there's a question in bright orange letters, am I better off renting? And to answer that question, you plug in these numbers. What are you paying in rent? How much do you think rent is going to go up? And then there's questions about buying a home. How much do homes cost in your neighborhood? What are property taxes? And then there's this box. How much do you think home prices are going to go up every year? You know, what is the home price appreciation rate? So where it says, maybe it's the fourth line, fifth line, or sixth line, it'll say appreciation rate. Try to type in negative 1% there. Okay. Negative 1. And then click calculate. Okay, your results. Okay. Please fix following errors. Appreciation rate must be a number between 0 and 100. So I should have fixed it. <laughs> it doesn't even let you. It doesn't do let it. you. <laughs> so I should have had that fixed. I think I should have worked harder to get that resolved because that's a yeah. That's that's not really being a neutral, for, you know, being neutral and supporting financial clarity and financial responsibility. So wait, wait, wait. So I got so this is this is the calculator that Freddie Mac has to determine whether or not you should buy a house, and yeah. it does not allow for the possibility of home prices going down yes sorry i'm sorry that i didn't you know send an email or uh, work a little harder to get that fixed so the calculator would allow for the possibility of reality a possibility that we all know very well as a reality today jacob worries today that some people may have used the calculator to come to a very bad decision to buy an overpriced house with a subprime mortgage when they should have just rented instead you know, it's not better to have owned and lost than to have never owned at all kind of thing. Like if somebody has a good chance of going into default, if someone has a good chance of, you know, not being able to stay in the house, it's probably better not to have uh, pushed them into the house in the first place. So that's I kind of kind of regret that, you know, if housing, everything turned out fine, I wouldn't be upset now. I wouldn't be apologetic. I, but being that house prices fell and a lot of people are stuck in housing and they could have rented across the street for half the price and they can't move and they can't move to where their family is and whatnot, uh, that is what I kind of apologize for. Now, I should say I did talk to a spokesman at Freddie Mac and he said a few things. So number one, he said Freddie Mac believes nobody should make major life decisions like whether or not to buy a home based solely on an online calculator, even a FreddieMac.com online calculator. Number two, Freddie Mac believes renting is a very good option for lots of Americans and they put their money where their mouth is by funding rental units as well as home mortgages. Number three, the spokesperson said that they are aware that this calculator doesn't allow for reality, doesn't allow for prices to go down in homes, and said that Freddie Mac is working to have it fixed. Now, I will say I spoke 
with the guy more than two weeks ago, and I just checked a few minutes ago, and it is still not working. You still can't have home prices go down. So what if it was working? We wanted to know, you know, what would a proper calculator look like? You know, this is a decision people make all the time, whether or not to buy or rent. So we wanted to spend some time just thinking about what an ideal calculation would look like. And we called up Chris Mayer. He's a major authority on this. He teaches real estate finance at Columbia University. And we started by just telling him how Freddie Mac's calculator is broken and doesn't allow you to plug in negative numbers in the home appreciation box. (laughs) Okay. Why are you laughing? Oh, because I can believe that. <laughs> so, so what do you mean you can believe that? Um, you know, their their goal was to kind of get people to buy houses, and everybody made money as long as uh, you know homeowners were willing to buy a house. So that the idea that it is better to buy in any circumstance to rent, I think, is a, is you know. I don't want to say it's it's a ludicrous idea, but say what you were gonna say. I feel like it was what it. I was going to say. It still is what I'm going to say. I've always wondered about this puzzle about buying and renting. Economics teaches us that when there are two similar and substitutable goods, like I don't know, apples and oranges, that the price should be pretty close to each other. So let's say oranges are suddenly three dollars each, and apples are only one dollar then people are going to start buying more apples and fewer oranges. Apple prices will go up, orange prices will go down, and they'll eventually be reasonably close together. But that is definitely not the case with renting and buying. Like in Brooklyn, New York, where I live and where you live, Adam, and in a lot of coastal cities, renting is a lot more affordable than buying. The two prices do not come together, and it's been like that for years. Yeah, I did the math for myself uh, a couple years ago. I checked it out, and... I rent an apartment and I saw that if I bought a you know roughly similar apartment in my neighborhood my mortgage would be well more than double what I pay in rent so that made me think it would be insane for me to buy but when you look in rural areas or in the midwest it's often the opposite buying is way cheaper than renting Chris Mayer says that housing is just different from other kinds of financial transactions it's it's just weirder it's more personal if you tell me that you think that IBM is going to earn, you know, $2 a share in earnings and it's going to grow at 10% a year. I'm just making up numbers. I don't know what IBM's share to sell for. Um, There will be pretty widespread agreement at about what IBM should be worth. That's not true for housing. It's not true in particular because your circumstances and mine are going to be different. We're going to have different time horizons. We're going to have different financial circumstances. And we're going to have different willingness to take risk. And so there isn't a single person that you can sort of say, well, if this prototypical person were to buy, then that figures out what the price of a home is. So as everybody knows, when you put a house on the market, you're really looking for a particular person who really likes your home. And so on one day, your house is worth one thing. On another day, it's worth something different, depending on who's looking at it. Right. And and you don't buy an IBM stock because you want to live in it or you want your kids to go to school. I mean, you just buy it to make money. That's whereas, exactly right. Whereas some people buy houses just to make money, speculators, but other people might buy it for non-financial reasons at all. It 
it's in the neighborhood they grew up in or, you know, they, they just really, really love, you know, Victorians or, or whatever it is. The value of a home is exactly as you said. It's the value you get for living in it. And two different people are going to get two different values from the same home. And so, it's so how a very do you plug that position. into a calculator? Well, that's that's part of the problem. This is why I sort of think there isn't a single calculator that you can do that can spit out buyer rent. So this guy's a big shot finance professor. I sort of thought we'd call him and he'd tell us, okay, here's the numbers you need to think about, and there's spreadsheets and there's formulas. But in the end, he sort of said, no, it's all about your psyche. For now, the Freddie Mac calculator still lives on the Freddie Mac website, still not allowing for the possibility of home declines, the possibility of reality. Jacob Kassoff no longer works for Freddie Mac. He's moved to Pittsburgh and taken a new finance job, a job he says, thank you again. He was able to get thanks to the bailout. And I asked him when he got to Pittsburgh if he bought a house. And he wrote me an email back, which says, Adam, why don't you just read this? Read what he wrote here. My wife and I are proud renters by choice. My experience at Freddie Mac really pushed me away from wanting a mortgage. It's like after working at a slaughterhouse. You just want to be a vegetarian for a while. I am going to regret the day that I was born. While we were working on this podcast, we asked to hear from some of you listening who are facing this question, should I rent or should I buy? And we got a lot of great responses. And we actually had Chris Mayer, the real estate finance professor, talk to some of you. Sadly, we did not have time to fit these conversations in the podcast today. Some are pretty great. Here's a snippet that shows how discussing whether to rent or buy leaves the realm of numbers very quickly and heads down some surprising paths. We've been doing a lot of thinking about renting and buying. I'm, I'm in my early 50s. My wife and I are looking at retiring in about five or six years or so and started thinking about what if we, when we sold our house and moved to our new town, what if we just didn't buy for a while? And being in a position where we nearly have what we think is enough, um, then there's no point in taking a lot of risk. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no point in striving for a lot of money that you're just going to hand off to your kids. You know, <laughs> wait. I want my parents to do um, that. My dad I might be listening, wife, but I still she, agree she with used you. To ask, she used to ask, "What's the retirement plan?" I said, "Well, you know, I think at the end we're probably living in one of our son's basements, and he can come by once a day and throw us a cheeseburger." And she says, "Oh, that's horrible." And I said, and then she thought about it, and then she says, "Wait a minute, that means we spend all the money, right?" I said, "Exactly." <laughs> they blow towards the doors. I start wailing. We've posted these conversations on our blog. If you want to hear them, they're at npr.org slash money. We'd really love to hear from other finance people who maybe, just maybe, want to apologize or thank the U.S. taxpayer. Please prove me wrong again. Send an email to planetmoney at npr.org, or you can all reach us at Facebook, Twitter, on the blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Hold on. Oh!